What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Um, you may be hearing the rain coming down on my windows. It just started downpouring outside. Sounds loud here, but I don't know how it's going to sound on the mic. Um, but yeah, each show is brought to you by All I Need. What is All I Need, you might be asking, especially if you're new to this show. And that's a good question. That's one that we all have to grapple with in life at some point or another. Sooner the better, I suppose. Um, but for us, it is skateboarding, art, and fashion. Uh, if you'd like to check out the All I Need movement, you can head to allineedskate.com. And first thing you'll see is our vlogs. We post heavily on our YouTube channel. And we do a lot of skate trips with the skate team. And we film a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff of producing our apparel and our skateboards. Um, we post regularly, usually one to two times a week. Um, you can check out all the videos right there. And also, if you click on the store link at the top of the page, it will take you to our online skate shop. And you can check out all our skateboard decks. Right now, we have three different series out. And right now is a good time if you're going to cop one because I just re-upped on all three of the series so everything's in stock right now um, so you could get whatever size with whatever graphic you'd like uh, also our decks are made in the USA the wood comes straight from Maine so you know you're getting the crispiest deck available and our we got tons of apparel men and women's apparel on there um, yeah so please check everything out at allineedskate.com and the awesome thing is, if you support us in our skate shop, that money goes directly back into building up skateboarding culture uh, in a lot of ways. One way is our yearly event, which our fourth year is coming up. It is the New England Am at the Edge Indoor Skate Park. I'm getting super excited. It's about a month away exactly. It is November 4th and 5th. Uh, and we have many divisions. We have our ladies division, which we're just introducing. This will be our first year, and uh, that's going to be awesome. We just put out new artwork on our flyer for the ladies jam. Peter James Glenn killed it. Our artwork was a lobster doing a uh, slash grind in a pool. And I told Peter, I was like, we got to do one for the ladies jam. And he switched up the colors and put some lashes on the lobster. It looks awesome. It's super cool. Um, that's up on the site as well. You can check out the flyers. We have 14 and under division, which is going to be sick. I do a lot of skateboard lessons uh, at the Edge Indoor Skate Park. And I get, nowadays, all I get is young kids, uh, ages from 8 to 16. And it's boys and girls. Actually, tomorrow, I have two skateboard lessons in the morning, one at 9 and 10 a.m. And it's with two young girls, which is so sick. I've noticed that they're very focused and they like to learn and they have good styles and they go at a pace that's good for them. A lot of young kids are like that, boys and girls. It's super awesome, man. Uh, but yeah, so we have the 14 and under division. We also have 15 and over division, which I've said in the past, that's kind of reminds me of, uh, it's like a heavy am contest. One of the heaviest I've ever been to all three years. And this year is going to be no exception. I, I go to the skate park a lot, and I travel around New England. I go to all these states. You know, like tomorrow I'm going to, after the skateboard lessons, The uh, me and the All I Need skate team are heading to Connecticut. 
um, there's a skate jam going on at Groton Skate Park. So we drive all over. We go to New Hampshire. We just we actually just went to the New Nashua Park in New Hampshire. We've been to Maine a bunch. Went up to Motion Skate Shop up there, and we went to the Low Card co- Compound and checked that out in Maine. We go all over the place. So um, I see all the shredders in New England. I actually started a hashtag, a new hashtag titled New England Shredders. You have to spell it like you have the accent. <laughs> Um, but yeah, my point is there's a lot of fucking killers out there that shred in New England and the 15 and over division is always sick. Everyone comes together and it's just like a lot of energy and the gnarliest skateboarding I've seen go down every year. It's like, this is the gnarliest because there's so many people under one building. It's just intense in a good way. Like a lot of energy. You just, you feel like you can skate really hard and fast. It's insane. I'm just watching most of the time because I got to run the event and, and help out and MC and stuff. But I'm just like sweating on my palms because there's so many sick tricks going down. Everyone's having fun and like there's a big crew and there's like people shredding, but people hanging out and supporting. It's a, uh, it's one of the best things each year. I fucking love it. And we also have a skate shop division, which is kind of the grand finale of the event because every year anywhere from 25 to 35 shops come and they bring three of their top riders, you know, that want to kill it. And they come and they fucking battle it out at the park until top shop is chosen. And it's intense. It's cool because it's jam format. So each team skates, one team skates at a time. So all three of the homies that ride for the same shop come out and they get, I can't remember what the time is. It's like maybe two, three minutes and they get to destroy the course. And then the next team comes, and the next team comes until we whittle it down to like, all right, these teams killed it the hardest. They landed everything, a lot of energy. And the cool thing about the edge, too, is that there's a little bit of everything. There's transition, there's ledges, there's rails, and there's all variations of each of those. There's small rails, big rails, round rails, everything. And same with transitions, small tranny, big tranny. This is all in the street course. You got a little bit of everything. So every year it changes, it seems, that a different style of skateboarding wins the event, you know, like the skate shop one. So the first year was just ledge skaters, and they were just skating all the ledges, but there was enough different ledges and enough variation that they just destroyed it. It was undeniable. Um, I believe that was Persona Skate Shop. And that was cool to sit because... That, excuse me, and that was cool to see because I just wasn't expecting that. And then I believe the next year, some heavy transition dudes won it. They just came and fucked up all the big transition and the little transition too. And I was just like, Jesus, they just were undeniable. Uh, that was crazy. And then the third year, fucking, uh, it was a mixture. There was a ledge skater on the shop. There was also a tranny skater on the shop. They could all do a little bit of everything, but you could just tell they excelled at certain disciplines. And uh, it was just three dudes that were so well-rounded that they came together and, and won 2016 New England M. We made a piece of art, too. Peter James Glenn hand-painted a deck with uh, the New England M artwork on it, and we gave it to the shop that won. And actually, I went to Solstice Skate Shop. They won, and I saw it hanging up, which was so cool. I was like, damn, that's that's just cool to be part of the history, you know? Um, yeah, I'm rambling a lot. We also do a best trick, which is fucking always intense, um, to just kill it. And we usually throw out cash. We give out cash for all the bangers landed. So we'll probably do that again this year. 
uh, it's a blast, man. Uh, yeah. So I think I covered that. Please check out allineedskate.com. We love skateboarding, and we invest in skateboarding, and we just want it to grow. To be honest, skateboarding has uh, made my life beautiful, man. Without skateboarding, I don't know where I'd be. My lady, my lady Dash, I met from skateboarding. She used to work at a skate shop. Uh, all, all my community, all my friends, everybody I know, they skate or they skating has touched their life in some how or some way. It was when I was introduced to skateboarding, it just pulled me in, and I met so many epic humans, you know? So our goal with all I need is to give back to skateboarding by all means necessary. And uh, that's what we're doing. So please check it all out, allineedskate.com. Also, if you could check out worldindustries.com, my pro model shoe is up there. I'm super proud of this thing. I got it right here. I'm looking at it. Me and my, my good homie Colin designed this from scratch. And uh, this is a real dream come true for me. So I'm stoked on it. And I don't promote it enough. Just, I don't know why. Just because I feel weird doing it. but. I shouldn't, because I really am proud of the shoe. And I'm hyped that Kevin Clem's been fucking skating the shoe a lot. He's been killing it in it. And this, this my shoe holds up, and I love the way it looks. It's durable. The sole's got good flex to it. It's cushiony. It feels like when you put it on your foot, and it already feels broken in. Like, I'll throw on a new pair, and it'll take me, like, five, ten minutes to, like, just, just be like, dude, I've been wearing this shoe for a month. And, uh... It lasts, man. It lasts. Honestly, I could just ride out a pair forever. It just, the sole ends up going because I've been filming a lot. So I'm dragging my foot in the ground. So I get like that filmer toe. You guys know about that? But that's just me like been filming a lot. Bombing down hills, filming Goonan and Westgate as they're flying. And I have to like control and film and keep my speed. But like seriously, if I skate a pair from scratch, it'll last me forever, man. Until I'm like, all right, I just need to switch it up because it's time, you know? But uh, yeah, I'm super proud of it. Super proud of this shoe. It's seventy five dollars, and it's free shipping. It's only available at WorldIndustries.com, and there's only limited sizes too. We did a very small run, um, in hopes that maybe we could move it, and if it did, we could design another one. Uh, it'd be cool to do a low top version. But either way, I look at this like a great opportunity, and uh, I stand behind the shoe. There's a lot of bullshit out there, you know? And uh, for me, this shoe is not any bullshit. This is the way to do it, man. So, yeah, please check that, please check that out. Worldindustries.com. And, oh, the size run. We did 8 through 11 in the half sizes in between. So we got 8, 8.5, 9, 9.5, and so on to 11. And these are men's sizes. So, But, yeah, our guest today is legendary East Coast skateboarder Mike Bell. We cover a wide range of subjects, everything from skateboarding, traveling, loss of both his parents, the joys of raising a family, and his new video project focused around Boston skateboarding in the 90s. I just love the skating and the scene. Rain, rain, go away. All I need is a skateboard today. Board today. This is the Shetler Show featuring professional skateboarder, podcaster, and All I Need Skate founder, Anthony Shetler. So everyone was, it was hot. Everyone was doing it. Yeah, they're looking for their dad's fucking metal skateboards in the garage. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Get on this thing. <laughs> Each episode brings you amazing discussions with interesting people from all walks of life. Kind of when skateboarding clicked for me, 
and you learn some tricks or whatever and you get that appreciation from your peers you know the other skaters are like holy shit like yeah dude that's rad admiration yeah, yeah the admiration or the, the affirmation real recognize real if I didn't experience those crazy moments in my life then these great moments would never be as great as they have been honestly like for me I just loved it like I saw those dudes I saw those videos and I was like holy fuck this is sick yeah this is what I want to do All right. Well, we're rolling. Mike, Hi, thank you. No problem, man. Thanks Hi. for having me. How I like to start these things off is let's start with how you found skateboarding. How, what age were you, and how did you find skateboarding? Okay. Um, I was about 12 years old. Yeah, I think it was about 12. It was 1986. And a friend of mine up the street had gotten like what I would consider a pro board. <laughs> it wasn't a toy store board, and it was the police academy that had skateboarding and I forget which one I think it was Police Academy 4 yeah <laughs> is it the one with like Pear Willander and Tony Hawk and and Tony yes Hawk. yes and they had like this sort of opening sequence credit sequence was this sort of skate scene of them cruising through the city and it was all the Bones Brigade guys yeah and so my friend showed we watched it we were just getting into skateboarding and that just sort of like set me off like oh my god like what is this I gotta do this I gotta know more about it so I bought a toy store board off my friend up the street another friend up the street for like 7 bucks I bought this like executioner <laughs> it was like a board from the big and heavy and awkward and did it roll totally um barely barely (laughs) and so then i saved up my money and it's kind of a funny story that i had actually gotten in trouble we don't have to go into why i was in trouble but i was in we can though if you'd like yeah it's just it was was stupid (laughs) punk stuff i was doing in my town (laughs) nothing nothing really worth it but i had gotten in trouble so my parents weren't too psyched on me and i had saved up a bunch of money but i had some more money in a bank account and i wanted to put a basketball hoop in my driveway but that required my father's permission and my father to help me put the thing up so i asked him if i could take money out of my bank account plus the money i had saved and go buy a basketball hoop and he said no so i went and took the 50 60 bucks i had stashed in my room and i went bought a skateboard yeah. my first that was my first pro deck it was a vision jinx marty jinx Jimenez, Damn. and i put my executioner wheels on it and the trucks didn't even line up so i had to drill the board out oh, to shit. make it fit because it was like <laughs> different standards yeah and so i had done that and then that was it i mean really was it i mean i would say by the time i was probably more like 14 by the time i was like oh skateboarding's my life and this is all i'm gonna do yeah um but yeah it was that was that was around that time it's so weird i remember like when, when i finally got into skateboarding it was all standard holes but i remember the trucks used to come with six holes and yes four yes and shit yes like that. because originally they were kind of like towards the front and people started realizing once people started doing no slides you would grind up your bolts and yep. you couldn't get them on or off again yeah. so then someone had a brilliant stroke hey let's move them back a little bit and so there was a period of time where they would come with two because the boards weren't all standard yet yep. so it would kind of like this thing then boards would have two sets of holes sometimes and then finally they just realized like just move the bolts back yeah. <laughs> like, make it a standard thing man it makes more sense you don't yeah. smash them up what uh so that movie got you sparked where were yes. you living? Uh, so I grew up in Shrewsbury, Mass, like Central Mass. Right? Oh, yeah. Right we're, outside of Worcester. We were talking about there used yep. to be a park there, Subliminal. Subliminal, yep. Gone, though, right? Yeah, it was gone. It was way be- way after my time living there. There was nothing around at the time. The only skate parks in the area at the time were the Skate Hut in Providence. There was the other Skater's Edge that used to be in Warwick, Rhode Island. There was another Skater's, skater's Edge. Skater's Edge, yeah. Wow. yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, old school. And then there was, um, in Maine, there was Rats. 
sick. Yeah, and that, that I mean, there might have been some other ones floating around, but those are like the main ones. They're all private indoor. There was really no public spark, public ones to speak of. There was a, a little bit later, a few more extra came on, like uh, in, uh, where is it, South Shore, uh, Whitman, the boulevard Whitman? used to be called. It was oh, basically gosh. like an old town utility road that they just like blocked off and lit and built some ramps there it wasn't the greatest thing but there was um good demos there back then in the day nice. like i remember templeton Bellelli coming through and damn stuff yeah yeah that's was, sick yeah so you're growing up around there you're skating obviously winters you're going to indoor parks Who, yeah did you have a crew who'd you meet how did it grow from there um in my town really there was you know when i got into skateboarding it was sort of at the peak like mid 80s there was sort of this surge so there was a decent amount of kids of skating in my town and since i was sort of the newbie you know you know, the way things go, they were kind of not so cool to us. So we had a little crew of, of newer skaters that were, like, in my neighborhood, and there was only, like, three or four of us. And by the time I was probably a sophomore in high school, all those other kids had stopped. They had all gone on to, like, girls, soccer, football. Skateboarding was just, like, on the decline in terms of popularity. So we started having to venture outside the city and through a lot of ways through the music scene. We had a lot of friends that were into, like, hardcore and punk. And so they were going out to Worcester and going to Boston, going on these shows, and just that scene, you started meeting other people, and they'd be like, hey, there's a dude that looks two towns away from us. Yeah. Let's go skate with him today. And so we would, you know, get a ride, or by the time our friends finally got, started getting licenses, we would just drive over, and they would drop us off, and we would just go to, like, Marlboro for, like, all day and just skate there. And yeah. so then it started gr slowly growing, um, and, you know, same thing as skate shops. So by the time I was in high school, we were traveling easily half an hour away to find like six or seven guys to go skate with. And we would just pick people up and then go to the nearest high school or wherever you could just go. You know, it was yeah. a, lot, a lot of centered around in like Southeastern Massachusetts at the time, um, like Bellingham, Milford, Franklin, you know, sometimes down in Providence because we were sort of all in that corridor, central who, mass. Who are some of the characters? Oh, so my friend Kyle, Kyle Vadeboncourt, who was a sponsored in the 90s for by Acme. He's kind of a Boston oh, legend. Oh, Acme. I forgot about Acme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's kind of a Boston legend. Um, unfortunately, he's gone through some hard times now. But uh, Mike Graham, who yeah. was from Marlboro, he was a really good friend of mine. Um, that was pretty much until I got to high school, through high school. And then when I went to college, um, you know, personally, I was not say I was over skateboarding, but I was like, you know, I was 18, and back then, being an 18-year-old still skateboarding was kind of weird. Yeah. People were definitely saying, like, you're saying, like, get a job, time to go to college. Like, I remember my dad being like, you're still gonna, you're still gonna wear all this baggy clothes and <laughs> still dress like this? Like, come on, you're going to college. Like, be Sign a man, right? Shit up, bro. Pretty much, pretty much. Like, <laughs> pull your pants up, like, all that crap. And so we went, uh, so when I got to college, I, I kind of was like, all right, I wasn't sponsored. I didn't really have any prospects of being sponsored at that moment. So I was just sort of like, it started to become less and less important to me. And then um, my freshman year of college, you know, I had my father passed away at the end of the year. And so that kind of sent me into a tailspin. My mother had already died four years previous. So I was found myself truly on my own and sort of like, what am I going to do with myself? Like, I really wasn't that into what I was going to school for to begin with. What were you going to school for? Business. You know, uh, my father was an entrepreneur. He had his own business. So the sort of logical progression was like, I was going to go get a business degree and take over his company. Well, now that kind of was up in flux because we ended up selling the company. And so it became this, I didn't know what to do. And so because of that, I had inherited some money and a friend of mine and I, Brian, we just decided to open a skate shop in Boston. Nice. And that sort of re- I say invigorated skateboarding into my life because it brought it back. So I was sort of like, you know, it was sort of becoming less and less important. And then it became like, now this is my whole life. Yeah. And, um, I think that's cause like, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. But I feel like that's because, you know, those external pressures of like, you got to put this away. 
when it could be your business if you like what was the, your father's business um medical records transcription oh <laughs> <gnarly>. <laughs> yeah yeah he was actually he actually worked for thomas edison way, really? way back in the day and he used to sell thomas edison's dictaphones which way back in the day were the machine that you would record something on and then had like the foot pedals and people would listen to it and they would type it out and that's how medical records were dealt with like the doctors would dictate they would record a, their record of whatever the patient's issue and they would send it to someone and they would type it out and make a physical fileable thing no, and sure. that was a kind of an uncommon thing to do outside of a hospital everyone sort of did that within the hospital and my father used to sell the hospitals and one day i don't know if it, as the story goes he was talking to this woman who's trying to sell her equipment and she was like uh i got so much work to do i can't deal with this blah blah blah. i kind of like blew him off and he was like wait a second if if i could actually take these recordings and get these things transcribed for you yeah. outside of here, would you be willing to pay me to do that? And she was kind of like, absolutely, I'd be willing to pay you. So he bought a bunch of equipment from himself and found people that could type and just started setting them up in homes and he would just bring them these recordings and be like, yeah, boom, sure. boom, and he just turned it in. He was truly one of the first people to ever do it in the country. He was a hustler. He was, and he had, at his peak, he had about four different branches around the country. I think he had one in Florida, Kentucky, and then two in Massachusetts. And um, yeah, and then there was, you know, there was other drama in the 70s, you know, he almost got put out of business, but he was able to maintain two of the offices. And so I grew up, he had an office in Worcester and an office in Boston. And, um, yeah, that was sort of like the assumed path I would take, you know. How do you feel about skateboard shop time? <laughs> he was, he had passed away at that point. Oh, okay, Yeah, okay. and that was a result of that. So, yeah, so like he, I mean, he was supportive, but like I said. Oh, that's I, what you said, he passed away and then and then, I, the then okay. I opened the shop because it was sort of like, I said, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And my friend had this idea, he had already owned the shit shop. And we were like, let's open another shop. I have the money, I don't know what I want to do. So we did it. And it was a great experience, but it wasn't, I realized in the, like, I wasn't really that into it. Like, I liked skateboarding, but, like, I did at the time, I wasn't really into um, running a skate shop. And it was a tough time in skateboarding in general. So it was a good experience. I met a lot of people. It sort of helped me get to know more people in the city of Boston, yeah. more skaters. And then it um, actually was the outlet for my first sponsor, really. So as I told you, we were only lasted for about nine months. Towards the end, maybe six months in, we kept getting robbed because back then we sold snowboarding gear. Yeah. And so we had like really heavy winter jackets. It was very hip hop culture. So there's a lot of like, you know, stuff that appealed to like just hip hop guys, like this oversized puffy coats, all this shit. So all these guys would come in there from like Roxbury because we were right over the bridge from Roxbury. And when the winter hit and it was like dark at four, you became like, you know, there was all these derelicts that hung up begging for change. It was just not a good area, you know, looking back on it. And I mean, I had a couple times where people just come in and grab a hat and just run out the door. Bullshit. Stupid shit like that, right? Yeah. That kept happening. And then one night, this kid came in, fronted like he was going to buy a bunch of stuff, pulled a gun on me, and walked out with like $2,000 worth of, of gear. Snowboard jackets, pants, everything, the most expensive shit in the store. And I finally was like, you know what? I'm not dying for this place. <laughs> like, I'm not dying for this place. I was like, so we made, me and my partner, we made a decision to just, like, close it up. And about two weeks, we were already in the path of closing up. About two weeks before we actually shut the doors, I got a call from this small company in Huntington Beach called Zimbabwe Skateboards. And they were like, hey, and they were actually sort of a clothing company, too. And they were run out of a skate shop in Huntington Beach called Marge's. They were kind of like the big shop. They sponsored, like, Ed Templeton and all these other guys. But they had this small brand that they had been working on. And, um... They just asked me to buy stuff, and I was like, hey, man, I'm so sorry. My store's about to close, all this. I'd love to buy your stuff, whatever. And I just, at the last second of the conversation, I was like, hey, you guys ever looking for East Coast riders? Nice. And they were like, yeah, sure. We're always looking to sponsor people. Send us a tape. Like, kind of like no big deal. And so me and my friend, we did like, all right, let's do this. And we spent that whole summer. So we closed the shop in, like, May. So I spent, like, the whole summer filming. 
and we would traveled all over the state of Massachusetts, filmed sponsoring tapes, and we sent them in, and they sponsored us. Nice. And I was like, that was sort of like opened my eyes, like wow, like this is possible. Yeah. Like I could, I could do this. And at the time, I had met my fr uh, Jeff Kula, who was a at the time was trying to become a or was a freelance skate photographer, but was trying to you know become a more prominent one. So he was always looking for people to shoot photos of and. You know, he hadn't had a lot of stuff published, so like some of the cooler guys, I could say, in the city of Boston weren't so inclined to go film with or shoot photos of them because they thought, like, it's going to go nowhere, he has never had anything published, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really care, so I would just go out and shoot photos of them, like, almost every night of the week. Was and he then, good at what he did? He was totally good at what he did, but, you know, but he wasn't a cool guy. You know, he wasn't a cool guy, he wasn't, like, in the know at the, at the time, you know, like I said, so people were just like, ah, wasting my time. And then... All of a sudden, Big Brother picked up one of his photos, and it was me. It was, my, yeah. it was my first photo, and I was like, I was like, oh shit, like this is awesome, like right, this is. What was this this uh, it was an Ollie over Gap in downtown Boston. Nice. It's not there anymore. The Gap got uh, on State Street. It used to be just a big, 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 a big wide ledge over like a pretty decent sized sidewalk. Nice. And um, yeah, and so from there, and then he yeah, had another another photo of mine got published from Transworld and Transworld that he had submitted. And then, uh, at the time, so I had that sponsor, and then, like, so they started running ads. So then it was, like, this sort of momentum started building that was, like... Tripping? Oh, totally tripping. I mean, it was, you're like... you're from the East Coast. You're from the East like, Coast, <laughs> like, getting people, like, say, just getting a, a box of boards showing up at my house every month or two or whatever, however frequently they sent it to me was amazing. You know, not having to pay for that stuff anymore. And that really opened up my world because I... They were out of Huntington Beach, and so shortly after that, I was like, I gotta go meet these people. I never met them, you know? I'm talking on the phone, they're sending me stuff for months, and so I was like, me and my friend Kyle and Jeff decided to make a trip, because again, he's still trying to get into the world of skateboarding as a photographer, so he was like, I'm gonna go out and see who I can meet up with out there. We all went out, met these people, they were really cool, and it was a small company, but through that, because Jeff was a hustler, you know, we went out and skated with, like, Ed Templeton, and we went out and skated with all these other, like, yeah. really well-known dudes, and he was shooting photos of them for Transworld, and so that got allowed me to get to know them. So then, you know, years later, Ed Templeton is coming through town, and with Toy Machine, and then you got Jamal on Toy Machine, and yep. you had Panama Dan on Toy Machine, and so, oh, yeah. so Toy Machine really became, like, a, I'll say a symbol, but, like, you know, they really kind of gave Boston skaters, like, their first go of it in a lot of ways, you know, like, those two guys, once they, first Toy Machine video came out, and people saw, like, Panama, and they saw Jamal, it was, like, really, like, stepped it up in terms of, like, Boston's profile, and I, I, you know, not remembering the sequence, but, you know, that's when I started to be able to meet people, and just through meeting Jeff, you meet other photographers, you meet other skaters, and yeah. it just, it just starts to snowball, and you're just, like, chasing down every opportunity that you can get. Yeah. So... Did you, you went out to California and yeah. visited. You never lived out there? No, not officially, no. I mean, I spent some good amount of time out there. It's times that I never had a house. <laughs> yeah. So just, you decided to stay on the East Coast? Is that a conscious decision? Or? Yeah, I think at the time it was a little, um, I don't know that it was like, I'm going to be all East Coast, but I think at the time I had a girlfriend who was here. Nice. She wasn't moving. She was going to college. So it was, that was a big draw to stay. Like, I think if I didn't have that girlfriend, it might have been an easier thing to say, Hey, let's go, you know, like, but that kind of kept me there. And then after doing that, then it became a sort of sense of pride. Like, if I'm going to do this, I'm doing this from the East Coast. I'm not going to just sell out. It's not sell out, but I'm not going to do this. And, and, like, I never liked the vibe of living in California, so I never was, there was no appeal to that. It was, yeah, skateboarding is there, but I never felt like it was the place I wanted to live and, like, set up my life. You know, yeah. I've always really liked it here. And, um, you know, maybe to my own Peril, I don't know. Maybe it would have been different. <laughs> <laughs> eh, fuck it. <laughs> right? Um, just a little back to backtrack a little bit. Sure. Um, losing both your family members at a young age. Yeah. Um, 
how do you where do you find your role models? Wow, you know, uh, that's an interesting question. No one's ever asked me that. And and to add to that, um, where do you find your role models, and how do you get back to normal? Because I, I imagine at a young age, taking two losses, mm. especially your safety nets, yeah. that they are, your parents are supposed to be, yeah. and it sounds like they both had, they were, they were good parents. Yeah. So, like, how do you rebuild from those ashes? That's a really good question. So, all right, so we'll back up a little bit. So, my mom passed away when I was 14, so I had really just gotten, like, into skateboarding, and um, I was a freshman in high school, and she passed away pretty much at the end of my freshman year of lung cancer, and... I remember at the time, like, that was fortunate for sk having skateboarding because I, rem I distinctly remember dealing with all that when she was sick and it was inevitable that she was going to die and it was sort of, like, grappling with all that. That, like, that was the one thing I could go do and all that f melted away. Yeah. I would just go up the street to the church behind my house and I would just work on my ollies and work on my 50-50 grinds or my rail slides or whatever. And I realized for that time, for that hour, that was two hours, like, None of that shit mattered anymore. Yeah. Like, really, none of that mattered. And I really, you know, it took me years to probably really fully appreciate that. But I do remember in the moment realizing, like, wow, I hadn't thought about this in a couple of hours. Like, this is kind of cool. Yeah. You know, so that it made escape, me almost. escape. And I don't know that I was consciously escaping, but it was probably, uh, you know, my I was being drawn to do it because it was allowing my brain to not think about those things. And so then, you know, you adapt and, you know, with living with my father throughout my high school years. And then I went off to college and... I said I assumed I was going to sort of just go and take over his business and then at the end of my freshman year he passes away and so that was definitely more of like a whoa moment like what am I going to do here because I'm now legally an adult yeah. <laughs> I'm on my own um, I do have sisters and an older brother I have two much older sisters they're like 17 years older than me my brother's only two years older than me so they were sort of um you could call them parental figures in a sense I mean I always knew they were there I never tried to really um rely on them too much like I'm sure I could have if I needed to sort of curl up in a ball and go live with them I could have I never wanted to because I was also just 18 and getting this taste of freedom and I was kind of like living in Boston like I don't want to go back to the suburbs and live with my sister and yeah, Boston so, sounds fun <laughs> yeah Boston sounds a lot more fun I'm like I'll struggle this out here and like fortunately like I did inherit some money so I had some means to sort of survive on my own without having to worry about it so that that helped a lot because I wasn't reliant on like living with my sister I wasn't you know um having to rely pretty much on anybody, I could manage it all myself, uh, fortunately, but it was, uh, you know, that moment definitely, when my father passed away, it was like a, a, I mean, I distinctly remember having this moment, and I sometimes feel really cold saying it, but it's, I distinctly having a moment when I sort of internalized that both my parents are gone, and if you have parents, Everyone has parents, and, and you, you know that they want things for you. You know, you realize how much you're living your life for them. Yeah. And I distinctly remember having a moment of being like, this is all for me now. Yeah. I don't have to please anybody anymore. Yeah. Like, my career choices, what color I dye my hair. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? All those things. I distinctly remember having that moment of like, I'm truly just living my life for myself. Because so much of it, like before, I was going to go get a business degree I probably didn't want, go work a job. And I probably would have had a nice life, and I would have had a nice salary, and I would have had a nice home and all those things. But would I have been fulfilled? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so some ways it's, it is a blessing in disguise because I was able to, um, you know, take charge of my life at yeah. that moment. And Well, it's I, like your parents want you to, they, they're worried. A lot yes. of times they're worried and they want to teach you the ropes because I imagine they want to make it, your ride easier than it was for them, you know? Yes. So a lot of times they do that and put the pressure on thinking it's for your best interest. So then, yes. yeah, but to come to that realization where you're like, okay, they're not here anymore. 
and I have to figure this one out. Yeah. It's kind it, of freeing, but also sad. It is. It's very, it's, 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 very, it's both. And that's why I feel bad saying it, because it almost sounds like I'm glad my parents weren't, are, are yeah, not around. But it's not that. It's just that, like, you know, it's like, no, make, you know, life gives you lemons, make lemonade, this sort of thing. And so... Survivor mentality. Survivor mentality. Sure. And I think definitely over the years, I've relied heavily on my friends, you know, and I, I think skateboarding gave me that group of friends, you know, real group of friends that I, you know, to this day still are some of my best friends and they are, will be for the rest of my life. And I think that I, you know, had I not been involved in something like skateboarding that had such a brotherhood mentality that that might've been harder because yeah. friends might've been more superficial. Friends might've been, you know, more come and go. And like I said, now today to have friends that I've had for 30 years and it's all because of skateboarding and all because of what, you know, bringing these groups of people together. I mean, we had you know, hundreds of friends over the years, but you know, you realize over the years you whittle it down to the people that you're most like and that you like the most and that they're, you share the same sort of like outlook on life with. And, yeah. you know, there's been plenty of fun guys I met over the years, but they're not lifelong friends. You know, they're just, we're just on different wavelengths. So well, that leads me to the next question. How'd you meet Charlie? Ah, oh, so Charlie, Charlie Wilkins, Charlie Wilkins. Is- yeah. So, so Charlie Wilkins. Um, so and to start off, I was probably a little bit of a fanboy of his. Me too. No <laughs> shame. So, yeah, so Charlie actually grew up two towns away from me. He grew up in South Rome, Mass. Um, three towns, maybe. And so when I was just getting into skateboarding, you're learning about, like, you know, there are other people out there. This name kept coming up, Charlie Wilkins. Charlie Wilkins. There's this guy, Charlie Wilkins. You know, people are, uh, you know, friends that had made it, ventured out to other towns or maybe had relatives in other towns that met other kids. They'd be like, there's this guy, Charlie Wilkins. This guy, Charlie Wilkins. And then, then and sometime in the early 90s, there was a photographer named Jeremy Traub, and he was probably one of the first Boston skate photographers, I would say. I mean, I, I maybe, there may have been others, but someone's I think, gonna like, be pissed, someone's going to be pissed, I, and that's not true. Probably published, and again, there's probably others, but he was the guy that was, like, out taking people out, trying to get his photos out there, you know, and actually getting them in magazines. So he had published, a, there was an, again, time when it was very hard to get into skate magazines as an East Coast skater. He had, I think it was the same issue, Charlie and Mike Graham... And maybe a couple other Boston guys that had photos in there. And it was um, Charlie doing a nose-blown slide on this little curb out in his town. And I just remember after that being like, who is this dude? Like, who is And just hearing, just hearing these rumors of him. And so every now and then you'd be at a, sp- a spot or a park somewhere and he'd show up. And I'd be like, watching him like, dude, this guy is amazing. Because he could skate everything. And he still can. He could skate mini ramps. He could skate rails. He could skate gaps. He can get tech. I mean, he can do it. He's, they used to call him the all-terrain vehicle. He makes it look easy, too. He makes it e- look easy. Absolutely. So... So when must I must be nice, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> so when I moved to Boston, I was a year older than him, um, and so he came into Boston the next year, and we both went at Northeastern University. I had dropped out, but I still had friends and roommates that were still going there, and I just opened my skate shop, and one of my roommates was actually good friends with his brother, and he was like, oh, hey, Charlie Wilkins and his brother are now at Northeastern, they're in the dorm, and I remember yeah. going over there, and you know, just slowly, you know, just through being around each other and becoming friends, um... You know, like I said, finding like-minded people. Like, I think out of all the people, we've gravitated to each other because we were like-minded. You know, so, like, we had, then we decided to live together, you know, with a bunch of people. We had a skate house together for a bunch of years in Boston. And, you know, our friendship just sort of evolved from that. But it was just skateboarding and skating together. And, yeah. um, you know, he, he has a totally different, because he actually told it to me recently, which I had no idea, like, his first memory of me, which is funny because it's years later. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's very, it's much, much different. So it's interesting. Oh, from how, where you started? Yeah, yeah. Like, so when I knew who he was, and I actually have a really, funny, I actually have a kind of a funny story about it. So when we were in, still in high school, there was a 
girl that my friend, a friend of mine was friends with who was like really into like the hardcore scene. So she didn't skate or anything, but she was like new skaters and she was actually dating Charlie and I didn't know this. And so we were just driving around skating one night. He's like, Hey, let's stop by Sarah Williams house. And so, uh, we stopped by her house and he goes in there and we realized like, they're like up in the family room, probably, you know, parents are out, probably do whatever teenagers do. And so we stop over and it was me, Kyle, and my friend Jim. And we're there. And I, remember, I distinctly remember Charlie looking over and like, he didn't know me at the time. He was looking over the ledge, being like, these guys doing here like, yeah, like go home dude like, go home and I told him the story actually just out when I was out in Portland two weeks ago and he did not remember it at all but I remember I remember looking up that there was like a like a loftish thing in this girl's house and we were there and like I remember being like holy shit that's true like, what the hell's he doing here? And I had no idea that he was, like, dating this girl. You're inadvertently kind of cock-blogging him? Totally, totally. <laughs> no. It was not the intent. You, did you go out to just visit him? To see yeah, him? yeah, yeah. Sick. So, yeah, I mean, so Charlie and I have been friends, really good friends for a number of years. And now now that we still skate together when we can, but um, since we've become homeowners, like, we both have an obsession with ridiculous projects in our house, so we kind of help each other. And, yeah, well, in all fairness, he's helped me way more than I've helped him. He's done every major project I've done in my house he's nice. helped me with at some level. So he came out in June to visit family and friends, and I convinced him to stay an extra week to help me with a big project in my house in exchange for the fact that I would fly out to his house when he wanted to because he wanted to put hardwood floors down. Nice. And so he cashed in the favor, and so we just went out and spent, like, seven days tearing up his old floors, putting down new floors, and... That was pretty much it. That's yeah. how you know when you have a good friend. When you can change the floor for each other. Absolutely. And he's the only crazy, <laughs> the craziest son of a bitch that would do it. I mean, what I put him through over the summer was pretty monumental. And the fact that he stayed the whole time and did it is uh, a testament. That's sick, man. <laughs> all right. So moving forward a little bit. So we're doing all this stuff. You're getting sponsored, hooked up. Did you yeah. end up with the board? The pro board? No. That's, that's like what I would say if you're going to – that would be my one big regret because I said no. <laughs> like, all right, so like I said, when they asked me, they said, you know, they had no pros at the time. It was uh, it was actually technically Zimbabwe, but they were merging with this company, Balance. These two small companies had sort of decided to get together, and then they realized having two small brands is stupid. Let's just merge it into one. Yeah. So they were going to merge it all into Balance Skateboards. And um, if I remember correctly, it was the fall of 1995 – because I remember I was in the elevator. You know, you'll never forget that moment. And I'm riding down the elevator in the hotel with the team manager, and he's just talking to me about stuff. And he goes, look, so we want you to be our first pro. And blah, 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 and all this stuff. And I was totally blown away. And I was like, okay, okay. But at the time, I didn't feel quite ready. And so I was like, all right, let's just take another year, and I'm just going to, like, skate my ass off, try to get in as many magazines and videos why, as I can. Sorry to stop you, but why, I, I, why didn't you feel ready? Well, at the time, and maybe, I don't know, at least in our generation, there was it felt like there was a lot of it, because, all right, it was the time when they were, like we were talking about earlier, when there was a lot of skaters starting companies. There was a lot of these small companies, and so they were really hungry for skaters because it was so small. So there was definitely, I felt like in, at the time, there was a lot of people that were pro that weren't, shouldn't have been pro just for the sake of, because these companies wanted to put a name on a board. Yeah. And so they didn't have really name recognition. They weren't going to really make any money. It was just sort of like the way for companies, I felt like, to elevate themselves and say, hey, we have a pro skater. Yeah. And so at the time, like I felt like I was getting coverage. I had at that point... You know, probably a couple of photos that were published in magazines. But I just felt like I didn't want to become one of those guys that was like a flash in the pan. Yeah. You're here today, you have a board, and then you disappear because you really were never that good or really never well that known. So I thought, like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this right. And I decided to do that. So I decided to say, look, let's just, you know, we'll work towards it. But I'm going to like just make sure that I'm going to, that's why I decided I'm going to go out west so I can not lose time for the winter. And I'll just keep, you know, meet up with everyone I can and just skate. And we'll see where this goes. And if, Next year, it looks like it's more prominent. Like, let's, we'll do it. And so, 
Three months later, four months later, I go to California for a month. I'm there for a month, and I blew my knee up. Uh, what and, was the trick? Uh, I was trying to ollie a really big gap. Oh, I actually yeah. have a video of it, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Is it online? Uh, I, I can make it online. I think it's on my YouTube channel. I think I posted it on Facebook. But um, it kept so funny thing. Like, oh, yeah. It, luckily, it cuts like right before I turn into a little sissy. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> but um, so, so that, that was when um, Eric Ellington was on Balance. And he's actually there. Like, I have a photo and video of him. Uh, he was trying the gap before me. Nice. So I have photos of him, like, ollieing and throwing the board away. And then I come right after him, and I landed. I just landed. It was a weird, awkward thing. You had to come at it, and you had to kind of, like, do, like, a weird, like, whoop, ollie to get around this thing. It was yeah. just a weird setup. It was a terrible Shift setup. Shift you off balance. Kind of. of. And yeah. I was, like, and I had already, like, was my one, my, my, what is now my good leg was feeling weird that day. So I was sort of favoring it and landing pretty hard on the other one. Yeah. And I think I just landed with, like, a twist, and I just, <laughs> Completely severed the ACL. Hush. Freaked out. Ended up having to drive back home because I realized I went. So I oh, so I stayed there because I figured I didn't know how bad it was. I was like, okay, it's a knee injury. It was terrible for the first few days. I went out. Uh, you know, after like three or four days, it started to feel better. I could walk on it. I was like, okay, maybe it's not that bad. I remember walking down the street and my knee just buckled, yeah. like complete, like gave out, out of socket. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Then that happened like two or three more times, and I was like, dude, something's really wrong. I've never had this. So I went to the emergency room up there and had them see it, and they're like, oh, yeah, you tore your ACL. I was like, okay, what does that mean? I'm like, well, you need to get an orthopedic surgeon. They start giving me names, and I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm from Boston. I'm not having surgery out here. Like, this is crazy. So we packed up, and we just decided to drive back home with that. I went back. I saw a sports medicine guy. You know, he was like, yeah, you need surgery, blah, blah, blah. I scheduled it, and then that took me out. That was, like, April. So that took me out for, like, eight months or something, and I started skating again in, like, the September of 96. And I skated for about six weeks, and then I snapped my kneecap in half. Jeez, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. You said it literally the tendons or whatever that were attached to it pulled it upwards? Yeah, so the top half of my kneecap was, like, when they did the x-ray, it was actually up in my thigh. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a it nightmare. Was, yeah, it was a nightmare. So I had to have surgery... To correct, pull those back together, they put giant pins in there, and they were giant. They were, like, protruding out of my, like, you could see them. It was, like, devil horns, practically. Hellraiser. Right. And so that was temporary. So they put those in. Three or four months went by. They said, okay, we're going to swap these out for low-profile permanent pins. So they took those out and put, like, screws in that were, like, embedded in my kneecap. And that was supposed to be the thing that was going to be there forever. Well, three or four months later, don't know what I did exactly, The knee, one of the pins snapped. And then my kneecap started separating again. So I had to go back for surgery number four. Jesus. And so they went back in. And this time, because my doctor was kind of like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> he goes in, drills out one of the, the broken screw, puts another one in, and wrapped wire all around my kneecap. Wow. So for So for like, and I lived like that. And so that, again, was supposed to be temporary. But this was four surgeries in under two years. And I was kind of like, I'm over it. I'm done. I don't want to have another surgery. And yeah. so he was like, if you can live with it, you can live with it. He's like, it's fine as long as it's not bothering you. And I was like, okay. So I tried to live with it and I lived with it for about 17 years. And it definitely impeded my ability to skate because while it wasn't like excruciating pain, it definitely caused a lot of discomfort. So anytime I'd go skate, it w wouldn't last very long, you know, and it would just start to swell up and it would get red and it would start to be painful and it just got weird. And, um, that just shot my confidence, like, completely. I, I all of a sudden went from being fearless to having all the fears in the world. And every, you know, I started realizing I can't take bails anymore. Yeah. That's when I, when I started realizing I can't bail on stuff because if I don't make it, I'm probably going to get fucked up. And that's when that started happening in my head. It was like, 
I'm done. Yeah, it's you too know? much of a Russian roulette at that point. Yeah, I, I, like every rail that I was going to try to hit or everything, I was, I'm thinking, like, if I don't land this, I'm going to probably, you know, land and fucking dislocate my knee again. Or that's how I felt. Maybe it wasn't going to happen. And then the, the constant pain. So I lived like that for a long time, and it definitely made me just say, you know what? This time has passed. I got to move on. Yeah. Do and, you? Did you end up having any more surgeries or just yes. rewrote it out? So recently, three about three years ago, doing something really mundane, I was vacuuming stairs. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Yes. But Very embarrassing. It happens. It happens. So I'm, I'm vacuuming <laughs> the stairs in my house and I had the vacuums at the top and I'm just going about it and I just pulled it to bring it closer and it just came tumbling down the stairs on top of me and my, the way I was sitting, this knee where it was out, I had this big, it, I literally had a big bump right there. It was just like out like this and the whole vacuum just slammed right into that pin, that little knob that was on top of my knee and it sort of, you know, my knee had found some harmony in there so it was painful but it wasn't that painful. It just disrupted that whole thing and all of a sudden I went from like being okay to now I'm in constant pain every day yeah. and I went to the doctor's they're like, well, you should have the hardware out. It was like June or May. I was early summer. I was like, ah, I don't want to be like limping all summer. I'll wait till the fall. I'll go and do it in the fall. Well, summer goes by, gets about August, and it starts to get infected. And uh, I wake up one morning, and all of a sudden, I can't put my feet on the ground. I'm in just in excruciating pain. And I was on vacation with my family, and I was like, holy shit, what's going on? So we went home. I was like, I got to go home. I went back, called my doctor, went to like an after-hours clinic, and he was just like, I don't even know how you're walking on this thing. <laughs> like, you should be in so much pain. I'm like, well, it's a little better now. You know, I've been taking ibuprofen, whatever. And he's like, all right, well, here's some antibiotics. This could be infected, blah, blah, blah. You know, if this, this, if this happens, get to the emergency room immediately. So that was like a Monday. Wednesday of that week, I think. Just hanging out with my wife, watching TV in our bed, and it was summer. But I distinctly remember doing this. I was like, Put my hand on my back just like this. And I was like, oh, man, my neck's really hot. And I was like, hey, to my wife, I'm like, are we, uh, am I warm? Like, I feel really hot. Because one of the things they told me, if you get a fever, go to the emergency room. Yeah. And she puts her hand on my head, and she's like, damn, you're, you're burning up. So we take my temperature, and I have like a 103 fever. Yeah. And so I call my doctor, and I'm like, hey, this is what's going on. Can I wait to see you in the morning? He's just immediately like, go to the emergency room right now. He's like, just drop what you're doing. Go to the emergency room right now. So I go to the emergency room. They look at it, they're just like, yeah, this is like an infection, we gotta like do something. So like they didn't know what type of infection yet, so they put me through x-rays, all this stuff, and they basically hospitalized me for three days and just Jeez. pumped me full of antibiotics to stave off the infection and because I, now I know that joints and hardware in joints is really susceptible to be infected and that can actually lead to amputations and shit. I was gonna say that. So yeah. I was definitely panicked and so they basically were like, okay, Knucklehead, we told you to get this stuff out <laughs> like yeah. three months ago. Time to go. So I pretty much had to have like emergency surgery and they took it all out. And I let it heal for like a year. And then all of a sudden I realized that, oh my God, my knee feels almost normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and it was sort of an interesting revelation too because I hadn't skated for much in like, you know, not a lot in the last 15 years leading up to that, that I kind of healed. Everything else on me had healed. My knee started to, you know, just because when I was trying to skate fresh after the injury, it's still raw. Like you're saying, you feel like that bone on bone. Like you just, you're feeling it more. And it's like not having skated for mo for much of 15 years. Like all the other injuries in my body pretty much healed up. My knee felt a lot better. So in the last two or three years, I've really felt like I can do this again. Yeah. Like, and not just be, you know, 20 minutes in and be like, oh, I'm in too much pain. Got to go home. You so like a good hour in a session. To totally. Tired, right? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Until like just my old man, this kicks in. So I, I, so in the last couple of years, it's really sort of, um, a, psyched me out to like be like you know what i'm gonna try to do this for as long as i can what, what did you do 
to supplement for the skating when you're injured and going through all this? Honestly, nothing. I mean, like I said, I tried to play golf a little bit. Oh, there, was, yeah. there, was, there was a couple of years in there where I was like kind of... You can like in, do it? Yeah, I, enough. I mean, I can play and not totally embarrass myself, but I'm not good by any stretch. I didn't do it. I mean, there was a few years early, uh, like right after I got married, before I had kids, where I played a lot because I could. But it's it's one of those things. It's time consuming. It's expensive, and it doesn't quite give you the same adrenaline rush as skateboarding. So it kind of, yeah. you know, aside from like once or twice a year with my father in law, I don't really go out much now. It's just like a, you know, I'll go do it past the time, but it's not. I, I can't. Maybe when I'm 65, right? Maybe yeah. then it'll be something I can get into, but. <laughs> It's just a lot of time and a lot of money. I imagine know? the kids take up some of that, too. Like, oh, yeah. How many kids do you have? Two. I have twin. They just turned 11. Twin 11-year-old wow. girls. Nice. Two girls? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's nuts. They're, it's 11. They're 11 going on. 100. Are you worried for 16, 18? Like, Dude, girls for... seem terrifying to me to have. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and a lot of people have said this, and it's, it's seeming to pan out that way, that, like, boys are tougher in the younger years, and then girls are harder in the teenage years. And that's sort of bears out because you know my friends with boys like they're nightmares when they're like five six seven because they're just full of adrenaline and just like everything's just like an adventure and they're like fight and all this stuff and like i look at some of my friends with them i'm like damn i don't know how you do it and then now but now it's starting like the emotional warfare with my daughters yeah and that's gonna be a little tougher i think to pull up to just to deal with it's funny because i had three sisters you said you had two yeah well i had three that were older than me so i dealt with girls and them growing up and hitting that age and it was fucking intense yeah (laughs) i survived (laughs) it it is it is an intense thing but it's awesome it's also awesome like they just turned 11 and they're really the great kids and that's been a great experience and a big distraction you know and they i guess the big bummer too is that they have zero interest in skateboarding i've tried so uh, many times even just scooters i'm like come to the park with me ride your scooters <laughs> and that worked for a couple of years and, so, and then like, they're like two years ago, boring. pretty much 20 minutes in they're just like this sucks and i'm like all right so now it's like I, and i did it for a while i'm like hey i give my wife some time off on a saturday sunday i'm like i forced them to come to the skate park with me for like two hours but 20 minutes in they're like off doing something and I'm yeah. like whatever we're not going home yet <laughs> just stay in just stay, just stay right what about what about dealing with kids in uh this new world this new social media world and all that stuff is that a headache you know interesting you said that because literally so my, they just turned 11 like two weeks ago and they had I feel their, like kids get their phones so early well, though. Th- so yeah. last this past Saturday they had their actual birthday party with friends and they just got their first phones oh. so they don't have any social media stuff yet but that's coming yeah. so we're trying to navigate this so it's uh yeah it's really become it, it, I was very hesitant to even do the phone thing with them only it's only because they're now off doing things they're going to friends houses they're going to birthday parties they're they they both dance ballet and it's pretty intense right now they're in they're at class like four days a week so they're away from the home a lot and it's like you kind of need to be able to get in touch with them they need to be able to get in touch with you if schedules change so we kind of had no choice on that front but i'm gonna take the social media thing a little slower because it's scary man it's just like you know i'm trying to impress upon them like i'm so thankful we didn't have it when i was 14, 13, whatever, because I would have done stuff that probably would be embarrassing to this day, and I'm trying to impress upon them that, like, you're starting a digital footprint. It's going to follow you for the rest of your life. Be very careful with what you do. Think about it. I know that's hard to wrap your brain around at 11, but trust me, like, even, like, their email address. They wanted to get an email address, and one of my daughters is obsessed with unicorns, and she wanted to have unicorn in the name. I'm like, think about it. When you're 35, you just, uh, and it's like, even with your phone number, like, this phone number is likely the only phone number you will have for the rest of your life. This will follow you everywhere. An email address, same thing. Like, when you're 35, do you really want Sadie the Unicorn as your email address? They're not real, bro. 
Unicorns aren't real. <laughs> so you gotta tell her. <laughs> I, I tell her that all the time. She doesn't want to hear it. She doesn't want to hear it. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm like, man, because I don't have any kids, but I thought about like if I had kids, what a headache that would be trying to explain social media and the connectivity of the internet and the power yeah. that they have. Yes. Because like kids, when you're young, you can be so ruthless because you don't you don't understand the pain that comes from certain actions because you're too young to know. You know, Absolutely. so like. They can be really ruthless and make a lot of weird mistakes and embarrassment, you know. Like if your life was on camera, Truman Show since birth, that's kind of what these kids are experiencing. Exactly, exactly. Yes, and it's trying to balance it because I even feel guilty, um, especially as they've gotten older and and more aware of things, even just posting pictures of them on social media on my own account. Yeah. Only because I'm putting them out there. Yeah. Whether they know it or not, in some respects, and I'm and I'm sort of shaping an identity for them yep. that it may be completely different than what they want for themselves, and so it's like it is a weird balance because you're proud of them and you want to show off the things they're doing, or you think you know whatever, and you want to let your and then that's the, even the thing with for social media for me is more about like connecting with family and friends that aren't around here, so it's like just letting them see, hey, this is what my kids are doing, but you realize you're creating a digital pathway for them that they have no part of. Yeah. And so that's a little bit, it's a responsibility, you know, it's, I can't say I've figured it all out yet, though. Yeah, I mean, there's probably no right way no. or wrong way, you just got to find what works at the moment and keep it And keep it going, right. and just try to keep them aware of the power of it, and so that they're not doing stupid, stupid shit. Yeah. What's, uh, going back to your skate days, at, yeah. your, at your height, Yeah. what's some of the gnarliest stuff you did? Because your knee got blown out, so that gap's pretty good. And I've seen some footage you skating big rails and stuff. What's some of the ones you remember that you're like, oh, uh, I got out alive? Or oh, oh yeah, I get out alive. Oh god, I mean, there's been a, definitely a few. I mean, in the back, I mean, one thing, and we didn't. I actually didn't actually ask you this, but it may not be as relevant because you didn't, you weren't as around as much in the '90s. But I was thinking about this in the sense of that, like the '90s. What was also great about them was that there was just so many firsts. Yeah. There was so much ability to do things for the first time because. Things hadn't been done. Yeah. It was all so new. And so I think I was fortunate in some respects that I was able to do a lot of things first nice. <laughs> on, on places that other people. So it may not have been the craziest thing, but I did it before other people. And that might have just surely been age yeah. because I was old enough and I was in the right place at the right time. But, um, you know, in Boston, I have a few favorite things. I don't know if they're the craziest. Um, like I thing of the, the silver rail and financial I showed you, like I think I, oh, I think yeah. it was the first one to ever skate that rail, so that was really cool. And prime board with the grade at the yeah, bottom. Yeah, the front side board slide. That was the, so that always stuck in That's my head. That's pretty gnarly. Yeah, it is pretty gnarly. <laughs> I think it's pretty gnarly today. Even it, yeah. it's a pretty steep rail. So like, especially at the time, like that was one of those places we'd all go to and look at and be like, no, nah, not today, or no way. And you might get kicked out. You, but, yeah, you kicked out, or just like like you're like ah maybe someday like type of a thing, and actually have to pull that off. Um, that was pretty cool. Um. Oh. Even like that no, yellow barrier frontside nose one slide, I really like that one. That was one of my favorite things. That, that I spot's ever did. sick too, and it's in the, the middle of a the highway yeah. and like the on ramp. So that was always fun. Um, that was fun. Uh, and then that big uh, gray rail in Ohio that um, huffed oh, yeah. in. Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was probably I would say my my moment. How many stairs? Just for counting sake. Oh, oh! If I, I all right. So the first part, if I remember correctly, is between is about fifteen <laughs> to about a thirty foot flat kink. Yeah, no, and then it drops off about six inches to like a six stair rail. Yeah, so it's it's down, down flat, flat, and then it comes drops. down six to another, another down rail. Yeah, yeah to exactly. another down rail. So that one was probably I would say my the most insane thing I've ever done, and the doubles thing with Charlie. That was that was, that was actually probably the one that that. 
I would say lucky to get out alive because we actually have photos, outtakes of that where I'm actually holding his hand. Oh, sick. Like, we were that close on top of each other. And honestly, I would never have done that. This is a plug for Charlie. I would never have done that with anyone else. And the order that we did them in was, like, purposeful because he couldn't, he couldn't wrap his brain around going second. But I also was not confident enough in my ability to land the trick every time. And he was so dialed in on that Smith grind, he could have done it in his fucking sleep. Yeah. And so he just, I just knew he was going to land this thing more times than he was going to bail it. So I didn't feel like I'm going to be on top of him. But it did happen a couple times where we bailed and we could have gone really bad. Yeah. You know, it could have definitely been a situation where we were like literally like stomping on each other's heads. And I saw one bail where you literally almost stepped on his leg. Yeah, yeah. And that was one. I mean, but we had like, we had a couple of those where it was definitely like, and, uh, I, I don't, to this day I do look at it and I'm just like, it was almost a different person. I don't know how I did it because I yeah. it, like just to, to realize that we pretty much were, we were at the rail within less than like a half a second apart. Like you just had to go at it like you're by yourself. And just not trust that. And just first. trust. But I'm like, I'm approaching it. And then right before I'm about to hit it, I see him go wham, like onto the rail. And you're just like, <laughs> like to get your brain around that. I think we started off like really far apart. Like he'd go, I'd go. Then we tighten it. He'd go. Then I'd go. So there's obviously a huge gap. Just getting into the rhythm of like how long it takes you to get up to the rail, like how, how the thing feels. And then you just start going tighter and tighter. And just till you just like pretty much around top of each other. I mean, it was literally that, you know, I, when I step through the video sometimes and I realize like, like, his tail is like this, and I'm about to, you know, it's just like, it's so close. It's yeah. so close. You have to literally work your way in increments towards it. Towards it. Makes it. Sense. Yeah. What, uh, what made you go to, you did lip sock fakie. Yeah. Did it start out that way? No, so it started off as a 50-50 grind. <laughs> okay, I was going to say. You're <laughs> so not... I think we went there, if I remember correctly, I think we had to go there three separate occasions to get everything. So we'd start off, it was actually, if you want the full story, I'll give you the full story. Please. So this started off with Jeff Kula, the photographer. You know, he was traveling all around, shooting photos of everywhere, and he was out on a trip, road trip somewhere, and because he was tied into Transworld, I think he was talking to someone, he was like, someone was like, oh, dude, have you seen the, the new cover of Transworld? It's got two guys on a handrail, or something like that, and Jeff was immediately thinking, holy shit, two guys on the same handrail? Holy shit, like, he was like, mind was blown, blah, blah, Well, then the issue came out, and it was actually two handrails, two uh... separate ones, so it was just two photos of two separate guys on two separate handrails on the cover, which was like the first time I think they'd probably ever done that, like shared cover, two things. It, may, it might have been two 50-50 grinds. And so he was like, oh, but this had started his mind thinking about it. Wait, so, were they not at the, the two rails weren't at the same spot? No, no, it wasn't even the okay. same spot. Yeah, it wasn't even the same spot. It was just right. two, so like the, whoever described it to him described it wrong, And so, but it started him thinking two guys on a handrail at the Perfect. same time. Yeah. So he, from the trip, called us and was like, what are you guys doing Saturday? And I was like, whatever. He's like, I got a photo, we're going to shoot, I'm coming to get you, like, 10 a.m., 9 o'clock, we're going to go to the MIT rail. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, I'm not telling you, because he didn't <laughs> want anyone to know, because he realized, oh, I have this idea, I don't want to give this away. Yeah. So he was like, I'm not telling anyone. He's like, I'm not even telling you. He's like, I'll tell you on Saturday what I need you to do. And we were like, all right, well, whatever, you know, you just don't care. So he so shows sad. up, he brings us there, and he didn't want to tell anyone, so nobody knew, it was just the three of us, and we decided we were just going to go there, so we go to the MIT rail. And, um, as a point of note, we were probably one of the first ones to ever skate that rail in, like, 94, 95. I was going to say, like, that footage you were showing me earlier, that was pre all the time I yeah. ever seen anyone skating. It yeah, I mean, we had stumbled, that was one of those, we just had stumbled across that rail in one of our many searches, and we were kind of like, holy shit, like, we had never seen, I mean, I think Robbie had claimed to skate it, but I had never seen footage. <laughs> All right, hold on. Yeah, no problem. Okay. I, sorry, guys, I gotta let the dogs out. My lady's home. <laughs> so anyway so Jeff had come up with this idea he picks us up he takes us there and he's like alright so this is what I want you to do and we were like 
what? Yeah. Like, you can, I think at first we we're just like, no way, dude, no way, this is not possible, we can't do this, we can't do this, and, but yeah. then we started thinking about it, and we we're like, you know, Maybe. young, and we're like, well, let's just try it, you know, so let's try it, so we started off, and it was like, alright, I'm like, I'm gonna 50-50, he's gonna Smith grind it, and so we started off doing that, and we got, and I don't know if we got it that first time, I'm gonna guess we didn't, um, we probably got kicked out didn't get it, or whatever, but then now we're hyped. Now we're like, okay, we have to do this. You we know it's like, possible. We, we know it's possible. We were, we were thinking about it more, and we're trying to do it. So we go back, like, the next weekend, and we, I believe, we shot a sequence in color of, because it was a nice, sunny fall day, I think it was, like, October of 95, and we shot a nice sequence, and we didn't shoot any video, because that was not as, we didn't have anyone else there, and cameras weren't even that accessible then, so we started doing the 50-50 grind, and the Smith grind, and we had pulled it off, so we thought, and then he went and got the, the photos developed, we looked at the sequence, and the sequence where we were supposed to both be on it, I was a fraction of an inch, or an inch or two off the rail, and Charlie's in, and then the next frame, Charlie's off the rail, and I'm on the rail, so we were like, that's not what we wanted, we have to go back, um, so we went back like another weekend, maybe the next weekend, and it was sort of a cloudy day, so Jeff made the choice to shoot in black and white, because it was like a cloudy day, and for some reason that day, I could not 50-50 grind the rail. I just could not 50-50 grind it, and I was just having the hardest time, and so I said, well, let's just try a lip slide, yeah. and so we started, I decided to throw that in there, and I was able to pull that off, like, just as a trick. For some reason, the 50-50 was eluding me, so we just went with it that way, and that day that we did that one, where we got, like, that classic photo, um, I watched through the footage, because we brought video cameras that time, and we just set them up on tripods, it took us nine minutes. Literally, I was gonna ask. Nine minutes. Why? I didn't realize it, which I watched the raw footage. That That's one easy. day took us nine minutes of doing it, and um, you know, I think because we had already had like two different times of like figuring out our rhythm, and we were already in it, and then it was just like finally, it just like came together. Yeah. And he got that snap on the right spot when we were both on the rail, and we had video of it, which we figured like because even if the photo comes out off, we can at least show the video, which you can probably find that moment in there when we were both on the rail. Was yeah. the photo published? The photo, the, 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 the photo, the black and white photo of us on the rail together was never actually published. They published the, the bad sequence for some reason. Of oh, us. that's right. But yeah. they did do it as a two-page spread, which I will be thankful for. Yeah. It was like a two-page center spread in Transworld. But we were never on the rail at the same time, so I was always kind of like, felt a little bit of a letdown. And was you it know? the 50-50 you were doing? Yeah. Yeah. Besides yeah. Wayne earlier. Like yeah, 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 right. You're going over. You're going forward. over him, right? I mean, I don't even think I was thinking at the time. I was just you're like, insane. I just, I just need to like land something on this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think our original idea was probably like two board slides. It would have been like easy enough, you know? Yeah. Well, nah. <laughs> but then you wanted to mix it up. You wanted, we wanted to make it something a little bit harder. Step it up for sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, I guess that leads us to today. Like, what you're working on a project, hence the reason why you came here and met up. Yeah. Um, maybe explain to people what you're working on and why. Cool. Well, um, yeah, so I'm working on a documentary about the, I guess you could say the history of Boston skateboarding is sort of the general theme of it. Um, but it's more like what I'm trying to make is more of a um, story of my, uh, this, I don't want to say it's my time, but it's, it's a story of skateboarding in Boston during the 90s is what I'm really trying to tell. Um, and I feel fortunate that that was sort of my time in skateboarding was the 90s. Like, it pretty much starts and ends there, you know, thereabouts. Yeah. And so, especially in Boston. And so I, I, I it was lucky I look back on it. 20 years later, and I really feel fortunate to have witnessed what I witnessed, to have been a part of it at any level, um, to have contributed to it, and to have known the people that I got to know, and now looking forward where all these people are still doing it, they're still running companies, or they're still skating, and they're still doing all the stuff, it made me realize what a significant time the 1990s were for Boston skateboarding in particular, but skateboarding across the country as a whole, 
And in talking with younger generations, I realized that not a lot of people have know about this or, you know, they don't have that knowledge because skateboarding doesn't seem to have that. We don't have historians. We don't have this sort of central repository for all of this sort of archival information. It just comes from like people like you and I telling stories to each other or telling it to other people. And I figured, you know, this could be one step towards trying to like preserve some of that time because it was, I think, a very important time for skateboarding. I think it's, you know, as I've dubbed it, the sort of coming of age decade for skateboarding, you know, street skating matured to sort of from was sort of a joke into this like legitimate serious driving force of skateboarding it sort of put vert on notice you know yeah. vert is almost adapted to street skating now with like you yeah, know the mega ramp and yeah. you know making additional things no longer is just a normal size half pipe good enough you know it has to be something bigger and grander and i think that was pushed because of street skating and the popularity of street skating and i think that always had that because that also brought with it the culture of skateboarding because it brought it into the streets like you know you go to skate park you hang out with a ramp but it's different when you're hanging out in the local plaza or you know hanging it's in the more city accessible you so can have more flavors and personality absolutely a vert ramp gets boxed in like they bought the x games or yeah. whatever extreme thing box it in and you know the five vert guys and yeah. it's kind of mundane and methodical and you're like oh it's just like the same shit but mm -hmm. street skating was always something a little uncontrollable. Yeah, think. yeah, and I think that's what, like, it was right, you were saying accessible because you didn't need a, a ride somewhere, you didn't need to be near someone, so especially in the early days, in the late 80s and early 90s when there weren't skate parks everywhere, um, it was the only way, And but, but back then we were always thinking about, oh, we have to get to that ramp, so we'll do this in the meantime, and I think that shifted where it was like, no, 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 I'm going to skate street, I don't care about all this other crap, yeah. I don't care about the ramps, and that's why I think you've had a lot of dudes that are probably can barely roll on the transition, but they can they can do the most insane tech trick on a ledge. That was always amazing to me. The dude could be pro, but like could barely 50-50 a quarter Quarter pipe, pipe. right, right, right. And How I does think, that happen? Right, and I think that's, I, I, as I've seen it in the recent years, it seems like that's morphed again now where transition has become more a part of street. Yeah. People are looking, you know, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's meshed into this different thing now, so you'd almost not even call it street anymore. I mean, I mean, it is, but you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's just whatever. It doesn't yeah. matter anymore. It doesn't matter. And yeah. it's like, people are doing crazy stuff wherever you can do it. I think it's just that, that there's no more gatekeepers. Like the, it used to be the videos and magazines were kind of bought up by people that advertise yeah. and they kind yes. of dictated what worked and what right. was successful. And, right. how, and then kids would see that and then emulate it. Right. But now it's like the wild west where everyone has access to broadcast themselves. Yes. So people can be more authentic to their skating and how they really want to do it without having to chase some bullshit, you know? Yeah. It seems that way. Anyways. Yeah. And, and another thing that I think changed with, uh, in that regard is that back, especially in the 90s, skateboarding um, vert was way more consistent. So it was something that you could put on display. Like you could have the X Games. Yeah. You could have like some demo somewhere because Vert's in it had to be centered around Vert because those guys landed their shit. Yeah. You know, a lot of the street guys, street skating was not nearly as consistent. I mean, people did amazing things, but it took them 5,000 times to do it. Yeah. You know, if, even from my own experience, like, you know, my wife always says that she's like, it's, she gets kind of, uh, if she forgets how inconsistent we because she watches a skate video and you see people just <laughs> popping stuff off, you're like, oh my God, this is how people do it. And then you watch people skate yeah. and you're like, oh, well, it takes them half an hour to land this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you realize that like there's a lot more to it. And I think Vert had that just inherent consistency to it, the way like street skating now. Like you could never have pulled off a street league no. type of a contest back in the 90s because 
in the 90s, you had a run where maybe a guy on a street run landed two tricks that he tried. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It was those, and if it was the craziest two tricks you landed, then you won. Yeah. But a vert run, you had to do like a full two minutes of insanity you to win. You hit each wall instantly. instantly. It's and one it's like, big ride. Kind right, of, yeah. exactly. So it's a different vibe, and I think that's sort of evolved now. Like now, I mean, just you watch the street league stuff, and guys are doing the most insane things, like first try, every try, and it's just I like, filmed this sequence. I actually got to go to a street league uh, with my homie Derek Fukuhara, and uh, he gave me some mushrooms, a microdose for the first time. Never tried it before. I went to Street League, and I'm like, oh, sitting there. And I filmed a, sequ- uh, a, time- a hyperlapse of the dudes on the course. And literally for like five minutes, no one fell. And they're all doing like switch foot back lips and like tray foot grinds and like big, like the hardest tricks ever. And it's only practice. And for I have, a, I have the hyperlapse, and no one fell for like five minutes. I was like, that is ridiculous. Maybe I was on mushrooms. Maybe, you know, maybe that's why. But <laughs> no, man, it's, it is crazy. Like the consistency now blows me away. How, like, how do you feel about like um, the Olympics and like do will it be in like is it going to be like an organized sport? I mean, oh, where do you think the direction of skateboarding goes? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, I've actually said this years ago to you know whoever people talking about this very thing when it was the idea of the olympics was coming around that i kind of felt like and it seems like it's happening like I, i'm not so in tune these days to know but it seems like it's sort of dividing and i always felt like there's going to be this sort of underground skateboarding that i was brought up on and then there's going to be this sort of olympic level skateboarding yeah. and there's not going to be a lot of crossover on the fact that we're all riding skateboards yeah. you know but these are going to be your like you know true professional athletes the guys that are making the big money that are sort of like consuming themselves with you know, the contest aspect of skateboarding, yeah. you know, to win that. And then there's going to be the underground nitty gritty skateboarding that's always going to be there no matter whether it's making a dollar or if it's making a billion, you know, it's going to always be there. And this will probably determine on the Olympic side would more be, I think, depending on the money and the popularity. So yeah. if the public decides they don't really care about skateboarding anymore, that'll go away Yeah, quicker than this will go away. Yeah, so, that'll be there forever. The core, the, the, the core of skateboarding, yeah. you know, and I, I mean, uh, so I, I think that, and I mean, you know what, I, Hey, if I was growing up in today's world, it'd probably be, I'd have a different perspective. I mean, I'm, the guys that are doing it, you know, they're killing it. They're making money. It's great. You're making money skateboarding. I don't know the detrimental effects it might have to the other side of skateboarding, but, you know, applaud them for being able to do something they love and make a shit ton of money doing it. I think about that. Like, the kids nowadays, they come in knowing it, you could have a career, knowing you could do this and that. Like, yeah. When we first started, or at least when I did, and I'm mm-hmm. sure your generation a little bit before me, that, like, uh... You didn't even realize that was possible, you know? So it's like just the mindset of kids nowadays, it, it becomes so different than what it was. It's not in a bad way, but just in a different way that kind of blows my mind, you know? It's weird trying to, as I get older and keeping skating in my life, it's weird to see people come in and just look at it for what it is now and go, this is what it is, and not know all the history. So it's super important that dudes like put it out there like that's why i was really hyped you hit me up and said you were making this documentary and trying to preserve some of this history because you know all this couldn't be without all those people that have dedicated their lives and time to to building up skateboarding you know so right it's like it's like it's like knowing about uh you know Barry Bonds or Alex Rodriguez or any of these other great baseball, Derek Jeter, without knowing about Babe Ruth yeah you know what i mean and that's sort of the way it is with skateboarding i feel like people know about the Nijas and the people that are killing it right now that are on the, you know, on, they're all over the place and they're, they're just like so good and there's nothing wrong with that, but they have no idea that they wouldn't be who they are if it wasn't for thousands of other people before them, yeah. you know, that were doing stuff that made that 
possible in a way because you know like that's why I was very curious to know about your experience being a pro skater in that second wave because all the guys that I knew and myself included who were trying it in the 90s it was like almost an impossibility and you were sort of like you don't know if this is possible and then you know I'd like to know what you your experience and then even the later generations does it seem like yeah it's no big deal it's like it's not this like it's not this big of a fantasy land as it was for us yeah for me for me it was like I was kind of like, it seems really hard to do, mm-hmm. and I, I had the impression you had to go west, so, you know, I got the opportunity to go west, went west for two years, did that, thought it was cool, realized, I was like, dude, I could do this back home, you know, so came back home, but it never seemed easy, but I definitely always, I've always been one who's obsessed over skateboarding and all the people that like to do it, and I like to look up all the footage and know everything just because... Yeah. I'm just want to watch it and yeah. you. I know you because you're showing your wife and shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Your kids are out there trying to like, Dad, I want to go home. <laughs> like, no, exactly. No, you're gonna learn ollies. It's hard, but it'll be good for you. It's Ex- medicine. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I always was like, this is not gonna be easy to make it happen. But to be truthful, I did get sponsored and make some money from skateboarding um, at a younger age than most. You know, so like. It was a little easier, I guess, because <laughs> yeah. for you guys, it was like a lot harder than what it was for me. There was already right. videos, all this content, and there was people doing it when I came and, in. And I know? think there was the, the bigger thing. I think there was an awareness that there was good skateboarding happening outside of Southern California. I That's think that huge. was the and that was the big thing that I can looking back on. I can kind of think about partly also why the documentary I think would make sense or, or make sense is that skateboarding at the time in the early 90s was so full hyper focused on southern california that it was an, it was this weird little anomaly and you'd get occasional new york cuz that's a big city of course and you might get other big cities here and there um but you didn't get a ton of stuff and it seems like guys like i said my friend jeff and people even like pete thompson who's another photographer and other people from around the country they were sort of almost at the same time having the same i don't know if it was conscious or not but it was like almost like everyone was like trying to expose their own area for like hey this is happening here and there were guys like jeff that were taking photos of local skaters and sending them to magazines and then trying to go and venture out and say what the hell's happening in minneapolis and he would go to minneapolis for a week and hook up with a bunch of guys and he would do an article on transworld and people would be like i had no idea any of this happened and i feel like then after all that sort of there was that flood of like there is actually good skateboarding happening now companies were like we don't have to only look at who's in Southern California. We can look at New York, Boston, Chicago. Different demographics. Pittsburgh. Yeah, you know, yeah. there are people everywhere doing amazing stuff, and we can actually, you know, tap those talent pools and expose those cities and, and bring attention to them. And I think that that decade really exploded skateboarding in all these little cities and gave it the notoriety that it, you know, has now. And, and I think that's really – because that didn't exist back then. I mean, I really remember that. Like when Met, when 401 started doing like retrospectives, yeah. that was a huge deal yeah. because they would come in and basically just expose everybody. And some guys you'd be like, oh, I know them because they're sponsored, but then there'd be a lot of unknown guys. Yeah. And then, then that, because of that, then they became known guys. And so like, I think, you know, Philly stands out in my mind because I think Philly had the, such a big explosion after they did that like retrospective in the early 90s. Because once you realize there's a scene in the hot yes. spot. Yes, and then people want to go there, yeah. you know, and then we, that's when we would go there. Now we realize, like, oh, we can travel, and you're a little older, you have a car, and you have a little bit of money, so you can just take a drive to Philly or to New York or somewhere and spend a weekend and crash on people's floors, and that's how you meet some of the best people. Fuck yeah. 
Definitely. <laughs> Some of the best times of my life were spent doing that. So, how long have you been working on your your project? And have you interviews with? Uh, have you covered a lot of interviews now? Who have um, you gotten in it so far? Uh, well, it's sad to say I've probably been working on it for about ten years, <laughs> off and on. Um, I've, I this last couple of years, I've tried to put more emphasis on it. You know, since it's a labor of love, there's no money behind it. It's just things something I do when I have the free time. Um, yeah, I've, I've gotten to, I've done about, probably at this point, about close to 10 interviews. Some of them I'm probably going to redo because I've shifted my focus a little bit. And so I think the early interviews might have not really been answering the questions that I was trying to answer. So I might go back to some of those people. But I've talked to some of the early Boston legends, people that people may not know about, like Pat Noonan, yep. um, Adam Ayer. Yeah, yep, I've, I've interviewed Charlie and I interviewed this um, guy, uh, Josh Kuzel, who's in like an early guy in the 90s um you know he was just around he was just a guy who knew everybody you know and he kind of spans he was from vegas and came here because i think of the family and so he has sort of an interesting story so yeah i'm looking to talk to pretty much anyone and everyone that had something to do with skateboarding in boston in the 90s and then even beyond that i'm trying to get interviews with some more like you know nationally recognized people to sort of give the broader picture of what was going on in skateboarding in the 90s but the hyper focus is sort of boston new england yeah. skaters because uh, I do think it was a really important time for this region. I think the scene that Boston enjoys today is very, very much a, a derivative of those years. Yeah, you know? 100%. And uh, I'll definitely have to link you up with Westgate because he'd be a good person to talk to because yeah. he's benefited from all the hard work of people yeah. that built skate scenes on the East Coast and all over the place. So he'd be a good one to ask about that yep. perspective as well. And, and he's got the 90s. I think you know his start was in the late 90s. Yeah. It's even like people like Ariel and Eli because, I mean, I remember them. Yeah. You know, Ariel Pearl yep. and Eli Reed. Yeah, they, family, they, they, what up? They were, they were this big. Yeah. You know, at the, at Maximus, like eight nine years old or whatever, when I was like twenty, and they were just like you know killing it and being like, it's awesome to see that they've stuck with it and they've made a name for themselves. And so I, I people like that that I definitely want to talk to. Yeah, those guys shred. I grew up skating with them. Nice. Me and Eli didn't always like each other. We're cool now, but we're competitive. I think or just haters. Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> I, I, that's that, that's the age thing talking too. Because I realized that too. People, I was like, oh, I used to have like a beef with them, but it was like it was really more like jealousy. Stupid. Because it was just like you're trying. Everyone's trying to do their own thing, and you're like, maybe they did something that I wanted to do, or I thought they were like all of a sudden better than me. I don't even know. Who knows? We get crazy about. Well, this like stuff. talking shit is an art form, you know. And yeah. You're like in a van or with all your friends, and it's like. A lot of things are said in humor, and they're like, it's funny. Sometimes funny factor wins, you know? Yeah. But, you know, if you do that too much, you'll come back to nip you in the butt. As long as you can <laughs> laugh at yourself, you know what I mean? Totally. That's what yes. I learned. Yes, you have to be able to laugh. Because I like that. shit talking. Like, some people, some <laughs> of my favorite skaters talk the most shit, and I'm like, they have an art about it. Like, it's they don't mean to really cut that deep, but it's just they're so witty about it. Like, Pat Smith is a big fan. Tim O'Connor, I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, those dudes are just quick-witted and talk shit. So I don't want it to die. I don't want no, no, I don't no, want no, kids no. to be like completely naked. No, 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 no. <laughs> you got your old age to uh, come back around to uh, realize the foolish things we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Make amends for it. Yeah, apologize. Exactly. <laughs> Part of growth, right? Right. Well, fuck, man. I think we covered it. And uh, if people. Uh, when this does drop, you definitely have to send it my way. Are you going to post it online? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Right. So my goal for the project is to, I mean, if I can stay with it, keep the momentum going, because I've got some good momentum going now. Nice. Um, I, I would love to get this, keep this going through 2017 and finish it in 2018. Nice. And that actually might work well, because it almost becomes like a perfect 20-year 
post Boston for me. Yeah. So it could be kind of a nice number to uh, end that to, to bring that out on. But um, you know, it's really just a labor of love. I would love to put it out to the world, and you know, if we can pull off some screenings around Boston or even in Providence where I'm living now, um, just to get people excited about it. And hopefully, I, if anything, it, it spurs other people to do similar things. You know, I've talked with people who. Um, wanted to do a documentary about like the ZT Maximus Seabull yeah. part of Boston. Cause that's, that was part of my, my stumbling block with this is I realized this is so broad. Boston skateboarding is so broad and I only have really a, a really, you know, proprietary knowledge over a small slice of it. And so to do, to really tell the whole story of Boston skateboarding, we would be doing a full, you know, mini series. Yeah. And so but maybe this will motivate people to do other things. And, um, you know, I know there's been a few that have been done around the country, you know, New York and other places. Uh, but you know, Hopefully this will be something that people will be able to look back on years from now to say, to remember the good days. Hell yeah. And uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you want any of that? Oh yeah, yeah. So it's uh, MB Studio. I spell it out phonetically. E-M-B-E-E Studio. That's at MB Studio for Instagram. And I'm not really on Twitter, but uh, cool. you know. So. Mike. Cool. Hey man, thank you. Thank appreciate you. it, man. I appreciate it too. I'd like to take a moment to thank the small portion of listeners out there that support this show by copying something from allineedskate.com. You guys might be a small portion, but you make a big difference. You're literally helping me produce this show, and it means a lot. So I want to make you a deal from this episode on to the end of time, because I'd like to keep this going forever. Uh, if you do purchase something from allineedskate.com, whether it be one of our decks, apparel, maybe even a nug jar, uh, I'll give you a shout out on the show. All you got to do is cop something from the store when you're checking out. There's a section where you can put a note. Just put, hell yeah, I'd love a shout out. And if you want me to shout anything out, like your skate crew, your dog, whatever, as long as it's funny and not mean, uh, I'll shout it out on the next Shatler show. So, yeah, again, thank you guys for supporting this. You are literally making this possible.